0: only actually been able to be here for half the time we had planned up to this point uh, but uh, we are so grateful that uh, that the skies have cleared and uh, we have a chance to gather here on our campus and worship the Lord together uh, Today is part three of our new teaching series through the book of first Peter called hope for exiles and if you've been with us either online or here on campus the last couple of weeks you know Uh, that we have been learning that we as Christ followers are elect exiles. That's what Peter calls us right as he begins this letter. In other words, we are chosen by God while simultaneously being rejected by the world. And to truly follow Christ, we must understand both of these realities. And this means that we're always going to be living in this strange tension. You could put it this way, we are both set apart and sent God has chosen us to be in his family, which makes us different. And so living in a hostile environment should not surprise us because as exiles, we don't belong here. But God also sends us into the world that we are so different from because he wants to bring more children into his family. And so that means we are sent to love and to reach the very culture we're set apart from, the very culture that sees us as strange, the very culture that often rejects us. You know, I told you a couple of weeks ago that that God doesn't call us to live as immigrants, as people who make this world their home. And he doesn't call you and me to assimilate into this culture around us to look like everyone else. And then I also told you that God doesn't call us to live as tourists, people who just don't want to be here, people who who just really all they want is for God to rapture us out of this mess. And so they don't form any real connections with neighbors. They don't try to penetrate the culture. God calls us to live as exiles, and that means our world, this world is not our true home, but right now God has put us here, and so we are investing here in this new community. That means we are loving people. That means we are learning the culture, but at the same time, we don't get too attached because we know we ultimately belong somewhere else. And it's a difficult place to be. It's a difficult way to live. And so to navigate this odd uh, pressure-filled journey, we need guidance. We need help. Say, I need help. We need that. And so that's what Peter's doing throughout this letter. And today in the passage we're in, which is 1 Peter 1 verses 13 to 21, we're going to see that Peter gives us what we might call rules for exiles. And by the way, in case you'd like to do that, through that app um, that Jay was talking about, uh, you can access sermon notes if you'd like to do it online. You know, just get to that app and you'll find it. I won't explain how to get there. I think uh, you're re- the people that come at 8 o'clock are extremely intelligent, so you don't need for instruction, right? So, so if you'd like to take notes that way, you can, you can do that as we're going through this. But we're going to see these principles for living as elect exiles, rules for exile. So uh, follow along in your copy of God's Word. Uh, if you have it out, First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to through 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Amen. Like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people say, amen. Now, in this text, there are actually three commands in Greek. There's actually, this is grammar you probably don't want to know about. There's actually some participles that have what is called imperatival force, and some of them get translated that way. So you may in English see more than three commands, but actually technically there are three commands in this Greek text. And so I want to pull out for us three rules that we need in order to live as exiles and unpack them. And here's the first one. Peter tells you as an elect exile to fix your hope. Fix your hope. Look again at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully. That's the command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is the heart of this verse, this command, set your hope fully. Everything Peter is saying here flows from these words. And so I'm going to take this verse apart. Uh, We might pass by that very first word, therefore, but it is key to understanding Peter's message. Because it is there to point back to everything that's come before it. It refers back to everything Peter has written so far in verses 1 through 12. And it's all about, those verses are all about our identity, who we are. We have a new identity. And if you go back and read those verses again, you'll see we're elect exiles. That's who we are. We've been born again. Amen? We have a living hope. We have an eternal inheritance we can never lose. We have God's Holy Spirit indwelling us in so much more. And because of all this, we have the power to rejoice in trials. That means no matter how bad life gets, we know the best is yet to come. Therefore, that word is tells us about how we are to live in the power and hope of our new identity. Because if you know Jesus, God has fundamentally changed you. So Peter says, live like it. That's what it's telling us. And I just want to say this. Many Christians, they never really feel good about themselves. They're, they're constantly seeking approval for others. And I want you to listen to me. I want you to hear this. You will always struggle with insecurity as long as you fail to believe what God says about you. Our identity... Not based on our performance. Our identity not based on the world's standards. Our identity is in Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. In fact, you might think about it this way. Uh, Peter is telling us, I want you to live according to who you are, and here's the key phrase, in God's eyes. That's how you live. And then he says, I want you to live according to who you are in God's story. In God's eyes, in God's story. What God is doing in the world through his people, the church, his family. And if you try to find your identity in anything else, it will never work. It will shrivel your life. And for some of you, it will destroy who you are. We have to find our identity in Christ. And so Peter says, with verses 1 through 12 in mind, follow the flow here. He says, because of all I've been telling you, now set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is urging us to set our hope exclusively on what God has promised to us as our eternal inheritance. And what is that? I wanted to define it today as uh, that we will know Christ Be like Christ and one day get to be with Christ in a place where there's no more crying, no more pain, no more fire, no more smoke, no more COVID-19. Do I need to kind of keep going on this? I mean, all sad things are going to come untrue. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we're looking toward. And he says, set your hope fully on God's grace. So don't water it down with anything else. You say, how do you water it down? Well, you water it down when you set your hope, your happiness, and other things besides God. And you think that God needs to provide those things for you to be happy. It's like this. I'm glad to know Christ. I'm glad to be becoming like Christ. And I'm happy about that promise to be with him one day. But I really also need you, God, to provide me with good health, good kids, a great marriage, and lots of money. I'm putting my hope in those things as well. And then when God doesn't come through on one or more of those things, we accuse God of letting us down. Let me ask you this. What has to happen in your life for you to feel like God loves you and is keeping his promise to you? There are a lot of things that I want God to provide for me. I mean, I hope he gives me help. I, I hope he gives me success in my job. I, I even ask him to give me prosperity financially to bless me. And he's a good father, so I anticipate that he may give me a lot of those things. But my hope is in knowing Christ, being like Christ, and one day being with Christ. And so if in God's plan, I sometimes do without some or even all of those other things, or if I suffer pain, suffer trials, I will still be satisfied because my hope is in God. My hope is in God, who God is for me. My hope is in what God is doing in me. Uh, we love Romans eight twenty eight. Many of you have memorized it, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But we don't always ask, what is his purpose? And actually, Paul makes it real easy for us because that purpose is laid out for us in the next verse, which we don't often memorize. In verse 29, it says, Paul says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Your purpose is to know Christ, to be like Christ, to be with Christ one day. And that's how those all things that God's talking about there are working for our good. So we like to memorize verse 28, but we don't always go on to verse 29 and so, yes, you ask God to bless you and take care of you now, but you put your hope in knowing Christ and being like Christ and being with Christ. And if sometimes that's all he's given you, you be satisfied with that. So how do we do that? How do we set our hope fully on Christ and what he has done for us and promised for us? Well, Peter, is speak- he actually speaks of two things in this verse Uh, that help us understand. These are two things that grammatically flow out of the command, set your hope fully. And the first one is that phrase, preparing your minds for action. And in the Greek, this is a very strange phrase for us. Some of you have heard this because it's some of the old translations, but it literally says to gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, One of my real technical uh, study uh, aids uh, had this I saw it this week it says to gird up the hips of your intelligence which is even stranger uh, to think about um, but you know we we don't think about the loins and the mind going together at least I don't I don't know maybe some of you do but I probably shouldn't go any farther with that just leave that alone but this made perfect sense to the people Peter wrote to because everybody in that day the men in that day all wore these long flowing robes and that was fine until you needed to work hard, run fast, or do battle. And so when they needed to, they would tie those robes up around their hips, which would enable them to move. And we would say things today like roll up your sleeves or lace up your shoes or buckle your seatbelt or maybe even pull yourself together. Or, Let's get this thing going. This is the idea here. In other words, you get ready for battle. You get dressed for battle. I just, quick survey, you don't have to explain this, but has anybody ever shown up somewhere kind of disastrously underdressed or overdressed? Either one. Has that ever happened to anybody else here? You know, that that can be kind of embarrassing socially. A friend asks you to come over, help him do some home repair, and you think he's talking about a dinner party, and you show up, you know, you know, dressed nicely when you need to have on your work boots and jeans. But the worst would be If you needed to show up for a battle and you thought you were going to the beach, and so you get there and your opponent has weapons and body armor and you have a swimsuit and flip-flops. See, that's not just embarrassing. That could be life-threatening, and yet this is exactly the kind of thing many Christ followers do when it comes to spiritual things. Peter says they don't take the battle seriously. They're lazy in their approach to Scripture. They don't... Plead for God's strength in prayer. They don't take temptation seriously. They don't have accountability. They flirt with it often. They treat sin and compromise in their lives lightly. And the bad thing with most sin is not the action in itself, but that it, you give Satan a foothold in your life. And by the way, by the way, I'm probably talking to someone right now who is entertaining sin and compromise. You're in a relationship, your godly friends are worried about You're starting a relationship you know is wrong. You're looking at porn. You're doing something unethical at work or maybe in your personal life. You've given a foothold to the devil and he will destroy you with it. And I'm telling you, don't play around. You know, some Christian parents, they they don't take how seriously the battle that's going on for their kids' hearts and minds. And I don't care if you send your kids to public school or private school or homeschool. God holds you responsible to shape their hearts. You are responsible to protect them from the lies the enemy is trying to seduce them with later on. First Peter five eight, we're gonna see that Peter says Satan walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I mean, if I as a parent knew that a predator was running loose in my neighborhood and I let my kids go out completely unsupervised, how would I not be considered a delinquent parent and yet a far more dangerous enemy than any sexual predator is hunting your child. And he's using the winsome lies of the culture to try to destroy them. See, whoever you are, Christian, wherever you are, God, Peter is saying here, you need to wake up. You need to get dressed. You need to prepare your mind for action. Clothe your mind in Scripture. Bathe your heart in prayer. The second phrase, how do we set our hope fully, is being sober-minded. It's really closely linked. You might think of it this way. It's, it says, avoid being mentally in- intoxicated. And, and we know what intoxication is. You could say don't allow addictions or habits to take over your life because when they do, you're putting your hope on them. So uh, stay alert. Stay disciplined. Live with the awareness that Christ is coming again one day, that Satan is your enemy right now. So how do we do this? Well, I want you to notice this. We use our minds. Both of these things are about the mind. And foremost, this means we are in God's word, we read God's word, we study God's word, we're putting God's truth into our mind, we're feeding on God's word. And as we do that, God changes our minds, God changes our hearts, he just changes us. Everything about us gets changed. I read an incredible story this week. It's about a man named George Hall, was an Air Force colonel who served during the Vietnam War. Before he went into the service in college, he was a captain on the golf team, pretty good golfer, had a handicap of four and on September 27, 1965, he was shot down over North Vietnam, and he got checked into the Hanoi Hilton. I don't know if you guys remember that or not. If, if, you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask someone old um, around you, and they'll explain it to you uh, after they're offended that you ask them because that means you think they're old. But ask them what that is. And for the next seven years, he was physically tortured, Physically starved, mentally tortured, kept in solitary confinement, and while most people would have lost their minds, George Hall disciplined his mind each day, and he did it. This is kind of interesting. I can see a few out there. I think you're going to get really excited right now because I know you. Um, He did it by mentally playing rounds of golf. His visualizations are so extremely detailed. They included everything about the golf courses, hitting the ball off the tee. Where he landed in the fairway or in the rough, raking the sand traps, feeling the wind, and then finally putting the ball into this, the hole. He he even when he could get a hold of a stick, he would use the stick as his club that he could actually grip something. And every day, every day he was mentally playing rounds of golf, and his his visualizations were so incredible. He called them his pebble beach, and this was all done in a filthy, dark prison cell for over seven years, every day, while he lost over 100 pounds of weight. After he was released, February 12, 1973, one of the first things he wanted to do was play a real game of golf. And uh, he got invited to play in the Greater New Orleans Open, and his first round, he shot an incredible 76. A reporter who was covering this suggested to him that his performance was just a case of beginner's luck. And he said, I quote, luck, I haven't three-putted a green in over five years. See, despite his physical deterioration, despite not stepping on a real golf course in over seven years, his body had developed uh, a kind of muscle memory based solely on his strong imagination. And Peter's telling us something similar spiritually. We fix our hope. Fix our hope. Now, some of you may be thinking about that word, and if You are, maybe you've gotten this already, but I'm using this word fix in kind of a double meaning. We sometimes say to fix, as in I fix my gaze on something. And this is when this speaks of focus and purpose and intentionality. And we need to do that with our hope. But we probably more often use the word fix to speak of repair. Uh, That fits here, too, because the truth is some of you have a damaged hope. Some of you have false hope. You've put your hope, you're putting your hope, even maybe right now, in the wrong things, in the wrong places, the wrong people. And so you need to fix your hope. You need to repair. You need to renew. And this can happen, even to you. This can happen even when we have true hope, and I think that's what Peter's talking about in the next verse, verse 14, where he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And he's just talking about how before we came to Christ, our, our, uh, the things we wanted came out of a wrong way of looking at the world. And Peter calls those desires of your former ignorance, wrong desires that grew out of wrong ways of looking at the world. Like you thought that making lots of money would make you happy. And then maybe you saw the people with the most money didn't really seem to be happy. Maybe you thought romance, relationship was the key. Not too long ago, uh, hip-hop star Drake said this in an interview. He said, there was a point where I felt I needed to keep the company of a different woman every night. I was trying to fill a void. But in those moments after sex, I'd know it wasn't working. Those quiet moments are the realest moments a man will ever have in his life. The next day, I'd convince myself to do it again, but during that time, I knew it wasn't working. Or actor Matt Dillon, who recently said this, most Hollywood people are relationship junkies. You get a high off a relationship like a drug, then crash off of it, and so you go from one hit to the next. Or maybe it was for you, you thought it was about just being liked by other people, and that's your social media thing. You live by your likes. And I'm reminded of something that was said not too long ago by Katy Perry. She posted this on Instagram, 100 million digital singles and still insecure. Or maybe you thought it would be be through accomplishment and achievement, coming the best. How how many of you watched uh, maybe this spring or later the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance? Lots of you saw that. Wasn't it striking, I mean, to watch this and see, here was a guy who literally was the best ever. And it really didn't lead him to happiness, but only to emptiness. So maybe you assumed that life, that life with you in charge would make you happy, but something somehow one day woke you up to the reality that just wasn't true. You considered the cross. You met Jesus Christ. You realized if Jesus is true, then the way of rebellion against God leads only to death. Real life is found only in him, and so you turned your back on that. That's called repentance. You surrendered your life to Christ. You showed that by being baptized, by declaring that you were being buried to your old way of living and that you were being raised to a new way of life, a new life in Christ. That's what you did. You've done that. You mean it. You believe that. But then sometimes along the way, you find yourself falling back into old ways of living. You're losing your hope in Christ. And it's easy to find yourselves as you're discontent about something, something's not working out the way you hope it would, it's easy to find yourself thinking, you know, I just need a little more money, or I need a different relationship, or for some of us, I need to get revenge on someone who hurt me. And Peter's just saying here, don't forget. Those desires never work. Don't go back there. Those old desires, they came out of ignorance. And so if you're here and you're struggling, if you're unhappy, fix your hope on knowing Christ, on being like Christ, on being with Christ one day. Let me just ask you, is there something, just be honest with yourself, is there something in your life that you tend to run back to? You Do you need to turn away from it right now? I mean, here's the question you should be asking yourself. Is my hope fully in Jesus? Is my hope fully in how God sees me? Remember God's eyes? Is my hope fully in what God has done and is doing in me? That's in God's story Or is my hope partly in Jesus and partly in other things? Peter says to make it as an exile, you've got to fix your hope. Say fix your hope. Fix your hope. Second thing, second rule for exiles, live out of sync. Live out of sync. Now, you know, in our technical age, we're always trying to sync stuff up, isn't it? I mean, how many of you get mad like at least once a week because something is not syncing up and you don't know why? We want to sync everything up, but... As Christ followers, we should live out of sync with the world. This is verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. There's the second command. Be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, here's what I'm getting at. Most Americans today don't see holiness as a positive thing. It, it more often gets used as an insult. I mean, if someone says to you, oh, you're holy, right? Is that a good thing? I mean, the way they mean it? Probably not. It's usually a a substitute for saying you're You're self-righteous. You think you're better than everyone else. And and most people think holiness is about keeping strange religious rules, about living an out-of-touch life. I mean, the church lady, she's holy, right? Your weird neighbor, he's holy. On the Simpsons, Ned Flanders is holy, right? And I see you Simpsons fans out there. Uh, he's very strange, right? He was part of the Holy Rollers, the bowling team in Springfield that would go to tournaments wearing monk's robes and you know, being accompanied in their bowling you know, things by a choir. But the Hebrew word for holy is kadesh, and it isn't that at all. That word literally means to cut away. And the idea is about being set apart, about being separated for a special purpose. And when it's used in reference to God, It speaks of perfection. It speaks of wholeness. In fact, you can kind of see, think about it, the relationship between the English words wholeness and holiness, right? Holiness is holy, perfect goodness, holy, perfect justice, holy, perfect integrity and love. And we all want that, right? Uh, Perfect justice, perfect beauty, perfect love. I mean, no girl wants to marry a guy who's only partially truthful, partially faithful, partially loving, I mean, who wants to have a government that's partially just and partially unjust? God is holy. He's pure goodness, pure righteousness, pure beauty. And so things such as injustice and impurity and deception are repulsive to him. Maybe you've read that verse in Habakkuk, Habakkuk one thirteen, that says God's eyes are so pure that he cannot behold evil, cannot see it. And that doesn't mean that, that sin is invisible to God. It just means he cannot look at it with neutral emotion. I mean, think about watching something you find repulsive, torture, injustice, abuse. You see a movie documentary about cruelty, about marital infidelity, uh, about racial injustice. You see that in real life, and you can't stay neutral. You react viscerally. That's what God is like with all unholiness. And so when that word holy gets applied to us... It's speaking of our difference from the world, that we're set apart, we're cut away. In other words, we're not in sync. And that means, and some of us don't want to accept this, that means that you will seem weird to the people around you. And some of us don't want to go there. We don't want to be there. But you have to, because if you know God, he's made you someone different. He's made you a new person. But because of the pressure, because of the difficulties of this, sometimes isn't it true that we find ourselves not sure we want to be different, not sure we want to be holy? It's very tempting sometimes to just go with the world's flow. I ran across uh, this story. Supposedly comes from the San Jose Police Department. It's about a police officer taking an exam for a promotion. And uh, one of the exam's essay questions read this. You're on patrol in San Jose when an explosion occurs in a gas main on a nearby street. You go to investigate, and there's an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there's a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and woman, are injured. You recognize the woman as the wife of your chief who is out of town on vacation. A passing motorist stops to help offer assistance. You realize he is a man who is also wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly a man runs out of a nearby house shouting his wife is expecting and the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. And then another man is crying for help. You see him in the distance. He's been blown by the explosion into a reservoir. He's saying he cannot swim. Now describe in a few words what actions you would take. And the story says the officer thought for a moment, picked up his pen and wrote... I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. Now, we can all kind of feel like that sometimes, right? It's just overwhelming. But the truth is, if you don't seem a little strange to everyone around you, isn't it possible you're more like them, the world, than like God? And in some cases, isn't it possible that you're not actually born again, but you're still a member of the world's family, not God's? I mean, just think of a few ways that the world changes, uh, that, that uh, holiness changes us. Financially, first of all. Let me just ask you are you financially out of sync with this world? Because if you are doing with your money what God says to do, you're going to be at least three steps behind the people who make the same amount of money around you. Let me explain it like this. I mean, the average person who lives around you uh, likely carries about $15,000 in credit card and other unsecured debt. God tells us as much as possible to live without debt. And so if we are following his wisdom, we are not spending the same amount of money on the latest TVs or the newest cars or the best vacations. God also tells us, secondly, to give away at least the first 10% to him. The world does not do that. God tells us, thirdly, to save wisely, which most people in the world doesn't do. And so if you do those things God tells you to do, that puts you at least three steps behind everyone else who makes the same amount as you. And you cannot help but see that in real life. You drive different cars. You live in smaller homes. You wear different clothes. You don't go on vacations that are as nice. And so if your spending habits don't differ from everyone else around you in significant ways, again, the question is, are you more like the world than you realize? Uh, In the place where Peter draws this quote, be holy for I am holy, it's actually Leviticus chapter 11. um, And in that chapter that he's quoting from, God in another place in the chapter commands the Israelites to just harvest the middle of their field and leave the edges of the field unharvested so that people who are poor can come and glean and have food to eat. No one else in the ancient world did that. I mean, like most business people today, farmers would try to wring every last shekel of profit from their yield. That's just smart business, right? But God wanted Israel to be different He wanted foreigners to walk past Israelite fields and say, why don't you harvest the edges? And the Israelites could just then say, it's because we serve a God who cares about the poor and who shares with the poor, so we do also. I'm not in any way saying that being wealthy is sinful. The Bible doesn't say that, but you need to have edges. If you're wealthy, you have bigger fields, so you can harvest more. But that means you should have bigger edges as well. So that's financially. Secondly, what about sexuality? Are you sexually out of sync with the world? I've always loved Augustine's words that Christians were most out of sync with the world in their relationship with three things, money, power, and sex. And the world is stingy with its money but promiscuous with its sex, while Christians are called, by contrast, to be promiscuous with their money and their power but stingy with their sex, the exact opposite. And we do that because we know sex represents a love like God's love, where you give yourself entirely to someone. And we know at the same time that our resources that are used like Jesus would use them, which means they are poured out to bless and help others. So we are crazy generous with our money. Are you in sync or out of sync? Here's another one. Are you out of sync with the world and how you handle your anger? I mean, would you agree with me right now that we live in an unbelievably angry time? Everybody's angry about everything. And how do we handle our anger and our frustration? Well, people in the world, we see this. They rage. They seek vengeance. They hurt. They harm. They do things to other people. Or some people who are a little more passive, they avoid conflict, and they just harbor grudges and gossip. What did Jesus do? Jesus never sought vengeance. He confronted. He did it selflessly. He did it patiently, but then he forgave, and then he moved on, and then he kept no record of wrongs. You see, we can keep going with this, but we are to be holy, to be holy, be separate in how you act, showing you have a different hope, showing you know you have a different judge, and you have a different perspective on life than the people who are living around you. Be holy. Here's the third rule for exiles. Live with fear. Live with fear. Now, some of you just reacted to that. You think I shouldn't put it that way. You don't like that I put it that way. But I did it so you would react like that. I got you. I did it because I want you to think about it. I did it because many of us watered down what God tells us in his word about fearing him. And I wanted us us to see this. Listen to what Peter writes. He says this in verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, and here's the command, okay, here's the third command, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Literally, Peter says, this phrase could be translated, live in fear. That's, the Greek could be translated that way, and that seems to be the opposite message, right, exactly of what we say gospel's about. You know, we quote the verse, which is true, perfect love casts out fear. But the Bible tells us to fear God. Maybe to get clarity on this, we should think of fear here as awe. Which is how some translations, uh, versions translate this word. We are to live in awe. Why? Peter says, we pray to a God who judges impartially. Do you ever stop to think that God is your judge? That God judges sin? He is a judge. God will judge everyone fully and impartially based on what they did and why they did it. No one's going to get away with injustice. By the way, that should give us comfort in this world. Peter goes on in verses 18 and 19 saying, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, the same God who will judge everyone impartially gave Christ for us to satisfy God's judgment against us. And through our, though our deeds, though our motives were as bad and sinful as everyone else's, Peter says God redeemed us by suffering judgment in our place and he did it at great cost. It wasn't through some trifling gesture. It wasn't through like the waving of a wand or making us do some rules, a set of rules for us to follow. God did that. God forgave us through the gift of his own son, The gift of Jesus to be cursed, humiliated, and tortured for us in our place. And that, friends, should make us fear. That should make us stand sometimes and bow sometimes in reverent awe. Some of you will know these classic hymn lyrics, and some of you may not. If you don't, you should look them up sometimes, and you should listen to these these hymns. But they come from a couple of hymns. I'm just going to quote them for you. One of them says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. Think about that. Here's another one. See from his head, his hand, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did error such love. Or sorrow meet, or joy compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were at present far too small? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Live with fear. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4 says this If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. See, when we truly understand how much our salvation cost, how great God's judgment against us was, how much God paid to save us, it should make us stand in wonder of God. It should make us afraid of being apart from him ever again. It should make us uh, bow in awe of the treasure he has now given us. It is fear, but it's confident fear. It is fear of what your life would be like without God. It is awe about how secure you are with him. Because, friends, there is no one like our God. There is none beside our God. He is worthy. He is worthy of all the praise we could ever bring him. Listen again to verses 20 and 21 says he, and he's speaking of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is, there's so much in here. I just want to say our redemption, our salvation is stunning when we stop to think about it. Before time began, in eternity past, God ordained that Jesus, his son, would die on the cross for your sins. And then in history, in space and time, at Calvary, he died and he paid the price for your sin. And then on Easter Sunday, God raised him from the dead, defeating sin and death. And then God exalted him to his right hand in heaven with great glory. You see... When you stop to think about it, nothing in the universe is more amazing in our sa- than our salvation. That's why Peter talks about, back in verses 10 through 12, the angels long to look into these things. The angels are fascinated by what God did in the gospel. And so we, if we know this, if we see this, this means, and he ends this passage by saying, we can have faith and we can have hope in God. We can live as Exiles. And even when the world rejects us, even when we suffer trials, even when we always feel away from home, which we do because we are, if we want to make it in this world that God created in great glory and great beauty, but that sin has damaged and defaced, we have to remember we are elect exiles. The world may reject us, but God has chosen us. We are his children. We are members of his family. God has chosen you. The world may reject you, but God has chosen you. And if you hold on to that and if you hope in that, knowing that that reality, that you are in elect exile, that that will never change. It gives you hope. Who wants to live in hope today? Who wants to live in hope tomorrow and the rest of your life? Who wants to go to heaven with hope? That's the hope we have. We can live in hope because of who God is and what he's done in us and what he's done for us. Would you bow your heads as we pray?